Hey fellow true crime lovers, my name is Patrick and I am the host of Not Adding Up. Not Adding Up is a podcast that features cases, as the name implies, don't add it up. This can be disappearances, strange deaths, wrongful convictions, unsolved crimes, and other unexplained phenomena. Each week I walk a friend or family member through a case in which they are unfamiliar. I do this to allow them to ask questions I may not have thought of while researching, or that you may have as you listen. The cases I cover range from ones that are well known, to some you may not have heard before. Since the cases I cover don't add up, I always encourage my listeners to form their own theories on what they believe happened, and never present my opinion as fact. Frequently my co-host has a very different theory than my own, which proves the cases I cover are ones that just don't make sense and need to be discussed further. So if you are a true crime lover and find yourself constantly forming your own theories when listening to podcasts, Not Adding Up is perfect for you. Tune in each Friday for new episodes, available on all major streaming platforms. Hello everybody, welcome back to episode 60 of... The True Crime B&B, I always say the true crime B&B. There's nothing wrong with the. It's the definite article. It's the true it's crime. It's the. So any others are fake and we will sue. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I'm Beth. I'm Bailey. Today we're in our traditional roles with Bailey hurting our feelings uh-huh. and me trying to band-aid everybody's hearts. I chose today a case, one that we don't really have an official resolution on. Okay. But it has been covered before pretty heavily. I just want to keep bringing it up because the more we point it out, the more law enforcement is held accountable. Okay. And I'm going to tell you about the mysterious death of Christian Shane Andriacchio. Okay. Christian was born November 4th, 1992 in Mississippi. He was a classic Mississippi boy, loved all things outdoors, shooting guns, riding four-wheelers, all that good stuff. And his mother described him as a kid, as loving to be the center of attention and life of the party. And a quote she gave said, Didn't matter if you were 80 years old or 15, he was going to try to flirt with you. (laughs) (laughs) From an early age, he had been set on becoming the youngest tugboat captain on the Mississippi. Oh my god. Isn't that cute? That's that's, quite a goal. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty ambitious. Okay. And I think he got into tugboating because his older brother Joshua, a couple years older than him, started working at a tugboat company as soon as he turned 18. And he said, I want to grow up and be just like my big brother Josh. It seems like that would be a really skill-centric job to Mm -hmm. be able to run a tugboat up and down the Mississippi River. And they weren't short shifts. I mean, he was working 30 days on and off 30 days. So he wasn't home for a long period of time, and he knew it was going to be an entire lifestyle, but that's what he wanted. Okay. So fresh out of high school, he hopped on board a tugboat transfer company and started learning the ropes. By 2014, at the age of 21, he'd been working there for three years. And as I just told you, at the time, he had been doing 30 days on, then go home, rest for 30 days, come back. And it sounds like his brother Joshua did the same exact thing with the same company, but they were on opposite schedules. Okay. So what they did is they got an apartment together, and he's like, basically, all right, May, you get the apartment. June, I got it. And that worked out. Okay, just don't leave it a mess when I get home. Yeah, exactly. But they've been doing this for a couple years, and they had it pretty down. When is this now? This is going to be in February 2014. Okay. He shared that apartment with his brother, Josh, but also he had a girlfriend of a couple of years that had recently moved in with him named Whitley. So did she just live with the brother when he was out on the tugboat? Well, she didn't even live there to begin with. It sounds like... Josh and Christian moved in, and then she started staying the night, and then she just never left and just lived there now. Okay. She didn't really have a place to go, so technically she lived here, but she's not on the lease or anything. It's she's just awkward when the when he's out on the boat for 30 days and yeah. she's home with his brother for I a month. I think it's kind of like a party house almost. Okay, so there's always people coming and going. Had, yeah, mutual friends always staying the night. They had a lot of bedrooms. It was just... Okay. On February 22nd, 2014, Christian loaded up the boat as usual and left for his 30-day journey with his co-workers. Mm -hmm. Three days later, on February 25th, Christian asked his captain for permission to deboard the boat early, only three days after he left originally, so he's really early. And his captain asked him, what's going on? Why do you need to leave? And Christian told him that there was some sort of family emergency back home that he needed to get back to and take care of. Okay. The captain told him that's fine, and their next stop near New Orleans, he deboarded the boat that day, February 25th. Okay. 
Christian's brother Josh later explained that Christian and Whitley's relationship had been really strained recently, and he had been trying to find a nice way to kick her out of the house. Okay. I think why he got off the boat was because he tracked down her phone, and she had stayed the night with another man the night before, and he was so upset when he found out that he was like, I feel sick, I need to go home, take care of this, kick this bitch out of my house, and be done with it. Yeah, there's nothing worse than thinking that somebody is sneaking around behind your back. It's just a gross feeling. Yeah, and you always seem to find that out at the worst moment, in the middle of your shift, when you cannot go home. Yeah. (laughs) And that seems to be what happened. Yeah, I can't deal with this right now. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be doing my job. And it was a pretty dangerous job, so you don't really want to be distracted mentally doing something like that. Sure. So that's what Josh's explanation, why he probably left early, and he just lied about a family emergency to get home. Well, it's kind of a family emergency. Yeah, a little bit. It's a domestic emergency. Mm Mm-hmm. Later, cell phone records would show that over the past few days, Christian had been calling numerous times a day Whitley and trying to get a hold of her, and she'd just been sending him straight to voicemail and ignoring him. That was the last straw for him is when he saw her at other man's house. Sounds like a mutual friend, but, like, more her friend than his. Yeah, I'd say a lot more her friend (laughs) than his. So, (laughs) he's in New Orleans now, and he has to try to find a way home because his car is all the way back at the original dock in Mississippi. Mm Mm-hmm. Later that evening, about 12.50 a.m., this is now the 26th of February, Christian placed a call to his friend Justin asking him to come pick him up, and Justin agreed. But as he's getting ready to leave the house, Christian calls him back and says, Never mind, I got another friend that's a little bit closer to me. He's going to come pick me up. 1.37 a.m., Christian spoke to his other friend, Dylan, who agreed to pick him up in New Orleans around 8 a.m. So it was going to be a long drive, but he agreed to do it, and he said, I can leave right now. Okay. While waiting at the dock for Dylan, Christian called his mother at 7.43 a.m. saying, Oh, yeah, I'm just working. I can't talk for long. He completely lied to her and told her, I'm still on for the 30-day shift. And then he said, I love you, and then hung up the phone. And that was the last time that anybody is going to hear from Christian other than Dylan and his girlfriend, Whitley. Okay. Dylan did arrive, as he said, at 8 a.m. on the 26th, and they started their three-hour drive back to Meridian, Mississippi, where they lived. During this time, Christian explained the whole situation going on with Whitley and how he was trying to end things with her and now it's the last straw. He's finally going to do it when he gets home. He also explained that Whitley, since she was a teenager, had been abusing prescription drugs, narcotics, and Xanax. She was specifically on a lot Mm -hmm. and he didn't like it. He said she's not holding her weight. She's not paying rent. She can't keep a job because she fails all these drug tests. And so, apparently, Josh had drug tested her the last month, and she had failed. And that was one of the leading reasons, other than the infidelity on top of that. It sounds like the whole thing was just a cluster, and she just needed to be gone. Exactly. She didn't want to be there, or she wouldn't be doing the things she's doing. So, they talked about that whole situation. He explained, it's going to be kind of messy. You don't really have to hang around once you drop me off. We're probably going to fight. You know, just a heads up. Mm-hmm. So 11.30 a.m., the two men arrived at Christian's apartment, and immediately an argument broke out between Christian and Whitley about her supposed infidelity the previous night, and Whitley claimed that she had only been at the other man's house getting high on prescription drugs and fell asleep and honestly doesn't remember what she did or did not do other than that the night before. So it sounds like she was kind of saying, I might have cheated on you, but I don't think so, because if I did, it was just because I was high. And that's not coming from Whitley. That's coming from Dylan, who is here still during this argument. Yeah, but that's still a really... Shitty thing to say to somebody who's paying all of your rent and way through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and not only is he paying her rent and providing for her, he bought her a BMW a year prior. And she just seemed like she was sticking with him because he was a nice guy and she knew that he loved her. And he was buying her things. She was using him. He was her train. She hopped on that train, Mm -hmm. and she wanted to see how far that train would take her. She rode it until she couldn't anymore. Yeah, Yeah, and he's like, okay, get off the train. But for that reason, because they were arguing so aggressively, Dylan, the friend, decided he wasn't going to take off. He wanted to stick around just in case, because he was friends with both Whitley and Christian. He didn't want anybody to get in a physical altercation, you know? Right, and that's, that's... I mean, a lot of people would skedaddle because they're afraid of being involved in all of this. Yeah. But if those are both of your friends, you just want to make sure everybody's safe. And that's what he did. He gave them a little privacy, went upstairs in the apartment and said, look, if you guys need me, I'll be up there. (laughs) Whatever. If I hear shouting and 
pounding, I'm coming back downstairs. Which is exactly what happened a little bit later. Oh, boy. According to both Dylan and Whitley, at one point, Christian had pulled out his handgun and erratically pointed it at his own head, screaming, do you love me? Do you love me? And saying that he was going to kill himself if she... (sighs) And this is, again... At that point, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't force someone to love you. But the thing is, this is only coming from the witnesses. Christian is not here to say that that did not happen. That's all I'm going to say. I'm this just is wondering all... why would Dylan say that if it wasn't what happened? Anyway, we'll, I'm... We'll get there. I'm, I'm outraged by that <laughs> yeah. behavior, so let me... Yeah, you, which you... is fair enough. Disgusting behavior, if that is what happened. That's not okay no matter what happens after this. Correct. At that point, Dylan decided to get involved, ran down the stairs, and took the gun away from Christian. And as they continued arguing, he went and hid the gun somewhere in the apartment so that he would not give it back until Christian calmed down. Good job. Good choice, yes. So he de-escalated that situation. And also at some point during that argument, Christian had allegedly broken Whitley's phone somewhere in the apartment. I don't know. Some people said it was before this even happened, before this argument, like days prior. But then I don't know how he would have tracked her phone the previous night. So I think it happened during this argument. Yeah, and he probably bought her that phone, so... Honestly, yeah, he has every right to break it at that point. (laughs) After the argument finally seemed to be done, the three decided to sit down and watch a movie. Okay. (laughs) All right. Poor poor Dylan is like, this is awkward as fuck. (laughs) I just wonder how the three of them now are going to pick a movie to sit down and watch together. I, I, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> but that's what Whitley and Dylan say happened. We can't even pick a movie to watch together and we're harmonious. And we like each other. Like. <laughs> Once the movie finally ended, Dylan offered to go out and grab some lunch for everybody. And according to Dylan, Christian agreed to this and asked him if he'd go to Chick-fil-A. And he said, yeah, sure, I'll get Chick-fil-A. And then he also pulled him aside, gave him his debit card and said, I want you, this was in quotes from Dylan, I want you to go to the bank and withdraw all of my money while you're out. Just casual. Just go to the bank and get all my money. All of it. That seems suspicious. In the aftermath. Yeah. When the guy that supposedly said this is apparently, yeah, we haven't gotten there. He's yeah. apparently not around to say that didn't happen. Yep. Okay, now I see why you're questioning. I'm kind of like, hmm. Why you're a little skeptical about Dylan. 12.30 p.m., Dylan is seen on the bank security cameras with Christian's debit card attempting to withdraw money. However, he spoke to a teller. It was it was a pretty large amount of money, apparently, because he went and spoke to the teller. He didn't go to the ATM. And she denied him access and said, you're not the person this belongs to. I can't give you that money. Yeah. And he said, that's fine, and just left the bank. And then there's record at 12.40 p.m. that Dylan had called Christian. We don't know if he answered or if Whitley did it just apparently to tell them they wouldn't let me have the money. Sorry, but I'm going to Chick-fil-A now. <laughs> okay. Don't know. This is a weird story. Fucking weird. And I'm not even telling you everything. This is such a rabbit hole. 1.06 p.m. Christian's credit card again was used at Chick-fil-A in Meridian, Mississippi. After this, Dylan arrived back at the apartment and the three watched yet another movie while they ate. Once the movie ended, Christian and Whitley both got up from the couch and announced to Dylan that they were going to go for a little ride and left the apartment together. Dylan, who doesn't live here, both the people who do have gone, decides not, okay, well, seems like they made up, I'll just go home. He decides to hang back and take a nap on the couch. Okay, well, he did just drive, like... That's true, he's like, God... 12 hours and... I can't sleep when you guys are awake, <laughs> Jesus. When he woke up a few hours later, the couple had returned to the apartment. Whitley at this point was sleeping on the opposite couch, and Christian was smoking a cigarette on the couch that Dylan was sleeping on. Rude. Well, it's his apartment, so I guess. Dylan at this point sees they're chilled out. He gets up and says, hey, I'm going to go to Best Buy. I wanted to get a new speaker system for my car, and do you need anything while I'm out? And Christian tells him, no, I'm good. And at this point, Dylan, for whatever reason, decided now was the good time to go retrieve the gun from its hiding spot in the apartment and give it back to him. Told Christian, unload it and please don't touch it or do anything stupid. Okay? And then he left the apartment to go to Best Buy. When he arrived back at the apartment later, neither Christian or Whitley were in the living room. Dylan called out for them, making his way through the apartment and nobody was responding. 
as he got up to the second floor, he noticed the bathroom light was on. And he kind of thought to himself, okay, well, he did just get off a three-day shift with nonstop working. He probably just wanted to shower after he's got home and all this shit's been taken care of, you know? Mm -hmm. So he just left him alone in the bathroom and then went on to try to find Whitley. Whitley was completely passed out, high on Xanax. Of course. And had been sleeping this entire time. Concerned when Christian still hadn't come out of the bathroom a little bit later. And the shower wasn't running. And the shower wasn't running and wasn't responding to any knocks. Finally, Dylan decided, I'm going to go wake up Whitley and I don't want to just walk into my buddy naked if he's in there or something, you know? (laughs) So he goes and wakes up Whitley and says, you need to go check on your boyfriend. He's been in there a long time. I gave him the gun back. I don't see the gun out here. And he's not answering the knocks. And you've been so stoned that if he fired the gun, you may not have heard it. Exactly. And she looked at him, brushed him off, and went back to sleep. So Dylan returned to the bathroom, and when he still got no response, he decided to open the door. Dylan found Christian. I don't know how to describe it because I have a picture, not of the actual, it's like a recreation. But Dylan found Christian hanging face down in the tub, which had a pool of blood in it. And I can post this for our Instagram. I'll text you. But there's the bathroom, and that's how they found his body. So his face, he's face down over the side of the tub. Yeah, and both of his arms and shoulders are out of the tub, but his head is over the tub, leaning over the drain. Yeah, that's a weird position. That is a really weird position. One thing I will say, though, back here behind this wall, that's the toilet next to the tub. So if Mm -hmm. he had been sitting on it, it is plausible that he fell forward into that. Okay. Maybe. All right, well, I will just, just wait, to play for, I will wait for more information. Yeah. Christian had been shot once in the right temple. Dylan, after seeing this, screamed for Whitley and said, this is not a fucking joke anymore. We need 911. You need to call. And she was useless. It sounds like she just kept running around screaming and then eventually just started hugging him and messing with the body and, like, holding him, not trying to revive him or anything, just holding him. And yeah, I because guess, she loved him so, so much. I guess if that's your boyfriend, that might be your response. I just think it's... So was sick. the gun still in the room? They couldn't find it. They couldn't find it initially. They do find it. Keep that in mind. All right. I this know. is so weird. So Dylan himself had to call 911, and that call was placed at 4.45 p.m. Dylan tells the dispatcher that his friend has shot himself and that it was a suicide. When asked by the dispatcher if Christian had mentioned previously that he was planning on killing himself or having suicidal ideations, Dylan told the operator, no, he hasn't said anything like that. He hasn't. You just said he threatened to an hour ago. Yeah. And, and before it, you went to Best Buy. Yep. And an hour later, that's the statement he gives to the police is that, oh yeah, he was waving around frantically acting all erratic and he said he was going to shoot himself. And, and that's when I took it away from him and took it upstairs mm-hmm. and hit it. Yep. I do want to say. Mm-hmm. That if your mind is racing, you may not immediately recall everything that's happened all day long. Yeah. So I I shouldn't quickly judge him about not saying anything about that because, Mm -hmm. I mean, you've asked me about things that we literally talked about an hour (laughs) earlier and I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And again, to play a devil's advocate like you are, we don't know if he misheard the question, if has he tried this before maybe he thought she said and he's like, well, no, but... Yeah, Something like that. It could be a miscommunication, totally. totally. Yeah, okay. So the call lasted from... 4.45 until 4.49. Okay. Officers arrived on the scene at 5.04 p.m. and started documenting everything and taking notes before they could move the body and all of that. And then once they were able to move his body, the gun was found wedged between Christian's left thigh and the tub. Which, again, I will show you this positioning... Yeah. Of his body. And he was shot in the right temple? In the right temple, and he's a right-handed individual. And it's w- between his left thigh and the tongue. Mm-hmm. That's just... And how the hell would it even get there? Unless, like I said before, he did it while sitting on the toilet and fell forward. Or kneeling in front of the... Possibly. Kneeling on the floor it, next it to the tub. his body did, yeah. I, I mean, that's the only way I can think that that might have happened. But it's still fucking weird. That's The yeah, chances well, of that happening are very slim, I feel. Yeah, for it to actually get caught and be stuck. Yeah. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying you couldn't do it again. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't... I can't think of any movement that would make it go into that location. Because if, he, if you shoot yourself in the right temple, the gun is going to have a push away from your head not 
over towards your left thigh. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm, with you. I'm digging in the weeds here, but I just... That's don't... what I mean. This case has so many different rabbit holes you can go down. Where yeah. I had to kind of stick to basic storyline. Okay. During the initial investigation, which, by the way, the police only stayed there for 45 minutes. And then they took his body and that the investigation was done. They was just a... assumed it was a suicide and they didn't look at it any further. Yep. Christian's family afterwards, well, they took Dylan and Whitley to the police station to get their statements. And Christian's family also met the police at the station to discuss what had happened. And they asked for his cell phone back. They said, well, if you're ruling it a suicide, I'd like to have his belongings back. And the police said, we don't have it. It wasn't at the scene. Nobody's sure where his cell phone has gone. And so the police go in and ask Whitley, do you have his cell phone for any reason? Because we need it back. And she said, I don't know where it is. It's probably back at the apartment somewhere. And at that point, an officer told her neither she or Dylan would be allowed to be released until somebody found the phone, whether that be we send an officer back to the apartment and look around for it, or you guys tell us where it is. Whitley walks over to her purse and says, okay, here, there's the phone. Jesus Christ, I hate this girl. I mean, I know that's a mean thing to say, but she has just been, she's like made the wrong choice on every single possible scenario since this whole story began. I mean, you could have easily said, oh, I was panicked. I was trying to call 911. My phone's broken. So I grabbed his phone. Whoops, I forgot I had it. But she just was like, fine, here. Yeah, well, if they ask you, you're not going to forget that you took his phone because he broke yours. You're going to go, oh yeah, he broke mine, so here's his. The police, at this point, had already decided it was a suicide. So after she handed them back the cell phone, they just gave it back to Christian's family. Well, they didn't even... at least it was Christian's family and not Whitley. True. The family did find some alarming things on Christian's phone. Yeah. Between 344 and 354, the day that he died, Christian's phone had called Matt, who is the other friend that Whitley had spent the night with getting high and whatnot. This is almost exactly... So this was an hour before he died? This was an hour before he died, yes. Okay. In those 10 minutes, Christian's phone had placed six total calls to the man that Whitley had apparently been having an affair with. All of which went unanswered, because I probably wouldn't expect the person that's sleeping with my woman to answer anyway, but... Oh, sometimes they do. Sometimes. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they think you're too stupid to figure it out. Mm Mm-hmm. However, the most interesting thing to me was there were three calls that had been placed from Christian's phone between 448 and 455. Those three calls, first one was an unknown number. Nobody has any idea, no affiliation, maybe a misdial. Incoming or outcoming? Outgoing. These are all outgoing. Okay. The second number dialed from Christian's phone while Dylan is on the phone with 911 was to one of Dylan's best friends, not a mutual friend of Christian. Okay. The third person dialed from Christian's phone was Dylan's mother, and that call to Dylan's mother was made after he had hung up with 911. So he could have used his own phone at this point. He was calling using Christian's, though. Well, he might have just said it might have just been easier to find her number in Christian's phone. I mean, if it was not to his mother, I would say that that would be more suspicious. But since it is... Dylan, 911 caller's mother, oh, after right. he has hung up with 911. Okay, I thought it was Christian's mom that he called to let her no. know what was going on. That would have been a decent thing to maybe do. Yeah, no. that's what I thought he was doing. So I misunderstood no. that. No, so these are all just for Dylan's best interest. Nothing to do with Christian at all, except maybe, oh, fuck, I don't know what to do. I'm scared. But what's, like you're saying, like your point is, why did he do it from Christian's phone? We know for a fact you were done at that point, calling 911, and they arrived like 10 minutes later. Whatever. Oh my god, this is so weird. And then, once again, after the police had gotten to the scene, another call from Christian's phone was placed at 5.11pm, he's well deceased at this point, to the guy that his girlfriend was having an affair with. Well, we know who called that guy. Funny how she doesn't have a working phone, and now she's holding on to this phone. Mm Mm-hmm. Police did perform a gunshot residue test on Christian, Whitley, and Dylan on all of their hands. Mm -hmm. And those were sent to the crime lab. It took a month for the results to come back. And when they did, Dylan's test result came as he had residue present on the back of his right hand, the back of his left hand, and in his left palm. He is left-handed. Wow. However, the crime lab stated that they could not confirm that these particles of 
gunpowder residue found were 100% from him being there at the time the shot was fired or if it was just from him having spent a significant amount of time in the crime scene. They think it just could have been residue floating around in the air. It was a small bathroom. Whitley's test also came back, same exact results, except hers were on both palms, both back of her hands. She was also manging all over him, though, so... Yeah, and she was holding his body. So, again, could be residue around in the air. Hmm. And then Christian's test came back the exact same, but it's just... Yeah. So, pretty much, they all three had the same results on their hands. Mm-hmm. Based on the time that Dylan was at the bank trying to get money out, mm-hmm. and then the time of death, what was the difference in that time period? So, the coroner pronounced his time of death and estimated it to be exactly as that 911 call was placed, 4.45 that day. I think that was such an estimation. I think literally the coroner showed up and said, yep, he's dead. Yep, it was a gunshot. What time did you call? What time did you find him? Okay, that was about the time. That makes sense. And I literally think it was just half-assed all the way through this investigation. I don't think they gave it the time. And and we'll get to the family hires a forensic pathologist later on. Okay. And so Christian's death was ruled a suicide and stayed that way. In 2017, warrants were filed for the arrest of both Dylan and Whitley, but during their trial, the grand jury decided there was not enough sufficient evidence to press murder charges, and it was dismissed. In 2019, a request was made to open a new investigation, this time with the U.S. Department of Justice instead of just the local case. His family has also hired a team of their own to investigate including forensic pathologist Dr. Jonathan Arden, who studied the scene and explained that there was a pool of blood under Christian in the tub. But as he looked at the pictures, there was almost none, if any, blood spatter anywhere on the background of the tub, behind the toilet if he had done it there, anywhere in the bathroom. It was literally just a pool of where the blood had been draining while he was leaning over the bathtub. Right, it was drips. It was drips. Not spatter. Yeah. He said, well, that's weird. I think that might mean he was moved here or somebody did some very diligent cleaning. Yeah. Dr. Arden then reviewed the autopsy and found that the back of Christian's calves had a significant amount of lividity. Okay, and that's from where it's been laying downward. Mm-hmm. That's when the blood pools after the heart stops moving it through the body. And it's on the back of his calves. When he was found face down with yeah. his calves spread out Which, behind so him. So it should have been on his shins. Mm-hmm. Dr. Arden said he must have been dead for this amount of pulling in his calves, sitting upright or on his back or something like that for at least 30 minutes before he was moved into that position and where he was found. Wow. He's trying really hard to get this case reopened and they have approved it. They just are having such trouble getting enough evidence. Yeah. It's so infuriating. And as I've said a thousand times this episode... This is such a rabbit hole. This case is insane, and there's more I don't have all day to tell you. But if you do want to know more and all these wild twists, there's a podcast that's been done. It's called Culpable by Dennis Cooper. Season one is entirely dedicated to Christian's case, and it's over eight episodes. They're like 30 minutes to an hour long each, so depending how much time you have to listen to it. I think there's enough reasonable doubt here that we need to keep this. Just one more investigation by a federal agency that is not in this tiny town. Yeah. That even if they originally didn't mean to cover it up, now they're covering their ass because they did such a poor job. It's never going to get done. Yeah. It just doesn't sound like he probably harmed himself. It Mm -hmm. sounds like somebody helped him along the way with that. And it's just unjust for them to just not ever have to face justice for what they may have done and and at least it should be investigated so wow what a yeah what a page turner that one is i don't believe a gosh dang word they're saying i'm sorry i just don't and it's funny because dylan seemed like a good character in this story Mm -hmm. all the way through until all of a sudden it's like he did what at the bank Because that sounds like a bunch of bullshit. Who sends their best friend to the bank with their bank card and says, take out all of my money on a whim? Who does that? I don't know. I just, I really don't know what to make of it. Well, that's frustrating and there's so much. My story is in the United Kingdom. Okay. But it was two Polish nationals who were involved in this story. 
and it's hard for me to say these names, but I'm going to try really hard mm-hmm. because I think it's important to try to get people's names right. Yep. So Michalina Lewandowska grew up in Lasochin, Poland. In 2005, she was still living in Lasochin, and at this time, Michalina was 21 years old, still at home with her parents, Jan and Miroslava, and her two siblings. One day, while walking near her home, she was stepping out of a shop from the relative dim into the bright sun, and she was kind of blinded by the sudden brightness, and she literally bumped into a young man about her age, and they immediately were interested in one another. They go, oh, excuse me, sorry, sorry, and then they started talking a little bit. They exchanged contact information, and then they arranged to see one another. So it was an old-fashioned meet-cute. It was. Okay. His name was Marcin Kaspjak, and he was a year younger than Mihalina. The two quickly became inseparable, even though Mihalina's father, Jan, wasn't so impressed with Marcin. Jan thought that Marcin was a mama's boy. He was spoiled, he was overprotected, and he said he did not make eye contact with Jan, which is always going to be a red flag for a parent if your kid's date doesn't make eye contact with you. There's something wrong with that kid. Really? Yes. I feel like I'm terrible at eye contact. It's important because people need to see that you are engaged. People who don't make eye contact seem shady. They seem like they're up to something. They seem like they're lying about something. It's kind of like the handshake rule. If a guy's got a sturdy handshake, he's going to take care of your daughter or whatever, you know? it's Well, women should have firm handshakes, too. Yeah, I always do just to establish dominance because I'm like that, but... Yeah, okay. I, I meet a lot of people in business, and they're mm-hmm. usually upper-level people, and they have the shittiest handshakes. I'm like, how did you get to be a, a vice president of your company if you don't have enough confidence to have a firm handshake? Anyway, so we're yeah, off track I see what here. you're saying. Yeah, yeah. But he did not make a good first impression on Jan, and Jan just did not really like this kid. Okay. So Jan eventually thought either wasn't going to work out or that this guy, Marcin, was going to turn into some sort of trouble for his daughter. But Jan also wanted Mihelina to take ownership of her own life and to make her own decisions. And mistakes. <laughs> and mistakes, because you learn from those. Yep. So Jan didn't interfere with this relationship as these two started falling in love with each other. And eventually they were deeply in love with each other. Up to the point where one day in 2006, Marcin proposed to Mihelina, placing a diamond ring on her finger, and she said yes. The same year, Marcin and Mihilina decided to follow Marcin's parents to the United Kingdom, where they live. His parents lived in a house in Huddersfield, West Yorkshire, and Marcin and Mihilina moved in with them. Marcin took a job at a meat processing plant. Mihilina used her skills at mending clothing to open a little shop out of their home where she was earning some income. For two years, the young couple worked and saved money, and in 2007, Mihilina became pregnant. By the following April of 2008, she gave birth to a boy who they named Jakob Kaspjak. And as Mihalina took care of little Jakob all day and all night, Marcin was getting bored with family life. He spent at least five nights a week at the gym, pumping up. He had aspirations of being a bodybuilder, and he was making some progress, but you know how they are. They never think it's enough, and so he started using anabolic steroids to bulk up. Mm. Yeah, and we know that that never leads to anything bad. Marcin was also changing in his attitude towards Mihalina. He started bullying her, making fun of how dull and baby-centered she was. I mean, you got a baby. You got to be baby-centered. I'm sorry. I didn't know you wanted me to just leave him in the backyard. <laughs> Marcin was being just rude and shitty. Yeah. And he would tell her that they were so much more attractive women that he saw at the gym every day. And he was becoming meaner and meaner all the time. You know, steroids will cause that. Mm-hmm. You have these violent outbursts. He sometimes had violent outbursts towards Mihalina. Having the new baby in the house was cutting down on their intimacy, but the abuse that Marcin was starting to hurl at Mihalina completely shut down her desire for him. Of course. Mihalina broke off their engagement not long after Jakob was born in 2008. Over the next three years, they were on again, off again. She wanted to leave him. She didn't have anybody else in this country. She's still not in Poland with her family. Mm-hmm. So the only people she knows here are Marcin's family. So even though she wanted to leave, she didn't feel confident about taking her son and getting away from the Kasjak family. Mm-hmm. So she stayed there and just tried to tolerate the situation until she could figure something else out. While Mihalina felt scared and trapped in this awful situation, her son was starting to get bigger. He's now a toddler. 
Marcin had heard some rumors that now that the sun was getting a little bit bigger and a little bit less day-to-day needy, 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 Mm -hmm. that Mihalina was thinking of taking Jakub back to Poland to be with her family. And Marcin, of course, found this to be unacceptable. Marcin wanted his mother to raise Jakub. He wanted Mihalina to just leave and let him have full custody. But there was no way that she was just going to leave her son there with this man and abandon him. Marcin was now fully immersed in his own narcissism and actively hated Mihalina for being there, deciding in 2011 that if Mihalina wouldn't give up her son, that he would have to get her out of his way. By May 28, 2011, Jakob was now three years old, and Marcin asked his family to take Jakob out to the shops to get some things, and he also called Mihalina and said that he wanted to take her out shopping as well. She was surprised by this, because he hasn't done anything like this in a really long time, She's also excited about it because she doesn't have a lot of money and she can't afford to buy nice things. She didn't know what he had in mind, but it seemed at the time like this would be a good development. To her, it looked like a positive thing. After Jakob and his grandparents had left the house, Marcin went through the house looking for, and he found, Mihalina in the hallway. Even though the two had more or less stopped talking about marriage some time ago, she decided that since he was making the effort to take her out shopping, she would put on her engagement ring for this trip out, just to sort of make a gesture of, yes, if you want to be together, we can be together. I don't know what's going to happen, but that detail's going to break my heart, isn't it? (laughs) Maybe not. As she was getting ready to go out, she heard Marcin talking to his friend, Patrick Boris, who was 17, and who was also part of the Polish Nationals community in Huddersfield. Mm -hmm. So she put on her ring, and as she walked out of her bedroom, she found Marcin and Patrick waiting for her out in the hallway. Marcin gave her a chilling smile, and she remembered that later, and she said that smile that he gave her was just cold, and told her he had something he wanted to show her. At that point, he pulled out of his pocket his new 300,000-volt stun gun and said he was going to show her how it worked. Her eyes flew open wide as she realized he was going to use this on her. He shoved the taser against her neck and discharged it against her, and she said it sent an agonizing pain through her whole body. It knocked her down to the floor, and he came down to the floor and put it on her neck again. Also, he was putting his knee on her chest. She tried to fight, but she was basically immobilized, and besides, he outsized her by 7 inches of height and 90 pounds. Marcin sent Patrick to go find a roll of packaging tape. So Patrick is just down with this? Patrick is part of this. Marcin wrapped duct tape over Mihalina's mouth. He used packaging tape to tie and wrap her legs together and to bind her wrists. She's immobilized. She can't move. She's going in and out of consciousness. They just left her slumped over on the hallway floor for two hours. And while she was in and out of consciousness... She's got duct tape over her mouth. She can't scream. She can't do anything. She couldn't move at all. She heard them talking about a plastic bag, and she was terrified that they were going to come and put that over her head and tape it all closed so she would suffocate. She remembered that Marcin was incredibly calm throughout the experience, and she said that this was the most terrifying thing, just his level of calmness and... Oh, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's been planning this for a long time. He's been... I think he planned it, but I think also he just did not care about her at all. He had no empathy towards what she was experiencing at all. And I think that's part of what was so terrifying. The two of them kept Mihalina taped and gagged for around six hours before they finally picked her up and shoved her into a cardboard box and taped it closed. So she's been in that squished up position, barely able to breathe. If you cry, it stuffs your nose up. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know how she's still alive after six hours. After not being able to move your muscles for that long, the amount of pain your whole body would be in. The ache is just unimaginable. They then carried the box out to the trunk of the car and Marcin then drove out to the woods outside of Huddersfield. Once there, Marcin dug a shallow grave and they dragged the box over the ground, which hurt her because she's all sore, she's achy, she can't move, and it's dragging over rocks, it's dragging over tree branches. Mm-hmm. The men then shoved the box down into the hole that Marcin had dug. How, did you say how deep it was? It was a shallow grave. Okay. So once they actually covered it, she had, they said, 10 centimeters of soil over her, which is probably about four inches. Yeah, but that's a lot when it's all compacted. 
Oh, that's not all they put over it, though. Oh, Christ, what? They then covered the box with dirt and dragged a heavy tree branch over it and lay it across the top of the shallow grave to disguise its location and prevent her from just going, Bling! I'm out. Mm. Then Marchine and Patrick got back in the vehicle and left her there, buried alive, waiting to die. All during the time that Marchine was digging the hole and burying her, he was ranting abuse towards Mihalina. He doesn't even probably think she can hear it. He's just ranting. He ranted about how much he hated her. He ranted about how long he had hated her. He said she needed to just disappear so he and his mother could raise Jakob. He said that she would never see Jakob or her family ever again. And he was saying all of this assuming that she was suffocating in this box, which she very well might have done and was probably getting close to doing. But all the yelling served the opposite purpose. It incited her back to full consciousness. She was trapped in this small box, in the pitch dark, terrified, unable to scream because of the duct tape over her mouth, unable to kick because her legs were wrapped with packaging tape. But she had heard the men's voices. She had also heard the spade turning soil and then soil falling onto the box. So she knew that she was being buried alive. She thought to herself, this is it, I'm gonna die. She also thought to herself that if she couldn't get out of this box, that her little boy Jakob was going to be left alone with this monster. She didn't want to die in this box. She tried to make a plan since screaming wasn't going to do any good and she was also afraid that this small box would soon run out of oxygen and screaming would just be a waste of oxygen. So she waited until she had not heard any sounds from outside for a while, but she didn't want to wait too long and pass out because even if she's not screaming, she's still using up the oxygen that's in this box. She had also realized that Marcin had not thought to take her engagement ring off of her before he put her in the ground. So she started using this to scratch the ring across the tape, binding her wrists and then her legs. She thought that if she could free her legs, she might be able to kick her way out of wherever she was. That is so smart. Yeah. Her hands are like this. She's like, oh, hmm, that could do something. So she scraped the tape with the ring over and over and over and over. She couldn't move very much, and the effort was really difficult from the position of her body and the stiffness and achiness of her body, but she kept working at it. Finally, after what she estimated was an hour, she had torn the tape enough that she was able to tear the tape off of her wrists and her legs. She also used the ring to make scratches in this stout cardboard box. This is one of those really heavy boxes that something big and, and heavy comes in. Okay. So they had stuck her in this heavy, strong box, and then they taped all the edges of it so that she couldn't just open the God, flaps. story is making me so claustrophobic right I now. Know. I, I know. I'm claustrophobic, too. <laughs> she had used the ring to make scratches in the cardboard, and then she finally gouged out a small hole, and she just kept working at it. Finally, she got the box ripped enough that dirt started falling in on her. She said... The earth started to fall through the hole. It was in my clothes and my hair and all over my face. It was horrible. She was exhausted, hurt, stiff, and sore. When she looked out through the hole, though, she could see the dark night sky and trees and leaves. So she knew that she was so close to freedom. She was finally able to push her head out through the hole. And she didn't think she had the strength left to get any further, but she gulped deep lungs full of fresh night air and forced her arms out through the hole. And that was when she knew she was going to survive. Let's take a breather for a second, okay? Okay. (laughs) She can breathe. Now I feel like I can breathe for a second. Okay. I know. these. I'll show you this box. It's a fucking nightmare. She achingly dragged herself out of the box through the shallow layer of earth and out from under this 40 kilogram or 88 pound tree branch that they had thrown over the top. Mihalina then stumbled her way back to a nearby road, which turned out to be Woodsome Road, and waited for a car to come by. Finally one did, and she flagged the car down. There was a man in the car who assessed the situation, saw how distraught she was, and immediately called for the police. They arrived within 15 minutes and then took her back to the location of the box and this grave to see what she had actually escaped from. She was treated at the hospital and Detective Chief Inspector Lisa Griffin arranged for a police raid on the Kospjak home. Marcine and Patrick were also both arrested. The two of them, after Marcine had used Mihalina's credit card to withdraw 500 pounds out of her account so that he could pay Patrick, basically a bribe to keep him to shut up, mm-hmm. had gone back to Patrick's house and played video games for several hours, confident that Mihalina was probably dead by then. And that's where they were when the police arrived to apprehend them. 
Marcin told the police that he never planned for anything bad to happen to Mihalina. He was just trying to scare her. He had always planned to come back and let her out, but she had just escaped before he could do that. In fact, he claimed that the two handholds that are used to carry the box were there so that she could breathe. Okay, well, you buried them under dirt, dude, so no, that's a lie. Marcin was tried for kidnapping and attempted murder, mm-hmm. and in January 2012, he was found guilty by a jury, and at his sentencing, he received 20 years. Patrick was also convicted of kidnapping, but not the attempted murder. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because he was 17 at the yeah, time. Yeah, he was a minor. I forgot. So because of his age, he was sent to four and a half years in a juvenile detention facility. Mm-hmm. Judge Peter Collier, QC, said, quote, It was your intention that she should not be found, and it was your intention that she would die there. The death you intended would have been long and slow. It is mind-numbingly awful to imagine the sort of death you intended to her to die. I must have regard to the uniquely chilling nature of this case. As I have already observed, being buried alive must be one of the most dreadful ways to die that anyone can imagine, end quote. Mihalina's mother, Miroslava, also said after the sentencing, I'm so happy by the verdict because for me it means peace at last. I was waking up at night having nightmares in which I saw Marcin's face. He was haunting me like a ghost. After Marcin had already been in prison for a year for the crimes against Mihalina, he was back in court in 2013 attempting to have his conviction overturned. Oh, fuck off. But he was denied the appeal. And on top of that, he was also later sentenced to an additional eight four-year terms for possession of explosives that had been found stockpiled in his house. At the time that they searched his house, they found explosives, which are clearly illegal, especially in the UK, where things like that are highly controlled. I really thought you were going to say they found it in his cell. And I was like, (laughs) how bad are the the prison guard checks here where he has like pounds and pounds of explosives in his cell? (laughs) And what was he going to do if something went wrong and exploded his fucking cell? <laughs> I don't see any big problem with that. All right. Well, I guess then the house makes a lot more sense. So That's a pretty hefty sentencing for just possession of it, though. Well, they're concurrent. So it's not like they are oh, so you're 32 additional years. They're all concurrent. But still, it's, it's more severe that way. Mihalina left her son's grandparents' home and moved into a refuge with Jakob. 12 years after she had saved herself using, ironically, something given to her in love by Marcin, Mm -hmm. she still has nightmares about being buried alive. She said, quote, He wanted me dead and planned to kill me in the most horrific way imaginable. Now he's the one who is imprisoned, and I hope he rots there. End quote. And she did not go on to create a foundation or anything like that, but just the fact that she got her son away from this monstrous person I mean, the will to live. I can't tell you the amount of fear, not just from the physical pain she was in at the time, but the mental ability to be like, okay, we need to make a plan. I would be so hyperventilate myself into passing out and then die from suffocation before I ever could rationally I would have that same response because I am so claustrophobic. (laughs) And like I've, I've mentioned before, to get through an MRI, I have to meditate. I have to do deep breathing meditation exercises just to not have a panic attack in an MRI. Yeah. So I can't even imagine being in pain, having been zapped twice with electricity, Mm -hmm. having tape over my mouth, having my hands and my feet bound, and crammed into this small cardboard box. I mean, she's, I, I just, she's amazing. She's amazing that she survived that, and I'm so glad she got him away from that guy. And I don't know that his parents were bad people. They may have been perfectly nice people, but they raised a little monster. Yeah, but it seems like they had to know the way he was treating the mother of his child. I would think in the same house. You would have to have overlapped with that at some point, yeah. Yeah, or at least arguing, or he talks badly when she's not around, and you would know. Mihalina Lewandowska, and go Mihalina. May your life be beautiful forever. And you know what? May they keep tacking on additional sentences to his time in prison because he doesn't deserve to get out. <laughs> well, a guy like that is going to be a guy. Who, either he's going to pick on people or people are going to hate him. So I imagine that he's probably not having a totally smooth go of it in the clinker. And how old was he? Do you know when he went in? He was 26 when he went in. 
God, these people younger than me murdering people. What the fuck is going on? Well, God, that other kid was 17. Yeah. Patrick was 17. Why would you let this asshole ruin the rest of your life? I mean, granted, it's juvenile charges and that'll be expunged when he when he's out. Yeah, but... But still. The UK is a place, though, where, good luck, next time you find a job, this is going to come up. It's still out there. It's on the internet now. Yeah, it's, that's true. If any employer looks you up to find your Facebook and sees this, they're like, you know, maybe we'll go with the other applicant. Yeah, well, you know how often people just get out and change their name. True. So that is my upper story for the week, and it, I'm sorry to drag you through a confined space scenario, because I know how stressful that is, because I know it was stressful for me. To be honest, though, I'd rather you do My Biggest Fear, where she survived, rather than, yeah. oh, and she didn't make it. So, like, yeah. all your fears are correct, Bailey. Oh <laughs> okay, so I think we're done with episode 60, and we will see you next week for episode 61. If you want to find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, we can be found at True Crime BNB. You right? can email us at truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. Yes. But don't send us things saying that we bought cryptocurrency. Yeah, what the fuck? Because we're guys? never going to buy cryptocurrency because we know it's all pretend. And then we got locked out of our account because somebody tried using our account email to buy cryptocurrency. So whichever one of you Joke's have. on you, motherfucker. We got two-factor authorization. Yo. And also, we don't understand cryptocurrency, so we wouldn't buy that. <laughs> so we fixed all of our problems. Yep. Well, that one anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we fixed one. Fixed one. We still have a whole... Let's call it a day. <laughs> we have a list of other non-podcast related things to fix, but... Yeah. Alright, guys. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye. None of that's true. It's anti-inflammatory. I'm just saying that these... It's inflammatory. Oh, anti-inflammatory. <laughs> it's yeah. ibuprofen. Are you threatening me? Don't threaten my little rocket. I wouldn't burn your car. I'd burn my car for the insurance and then take yours. All right, I'm going to do a quick recap on how to pronounce my names. Marcin, Kaspchak, Mihelina, Lewandowska, and Laz- Lazuchin. Okay. Okay. I feel like you just performed a latin <laughs> spell on me oh it was a polish spell i just performed upon you well that's slightly less ominous than a latin spell his parents lived in a house in huddersfield or huddersfield <laughs> <laughs> i'm just imagining andy listening to this like i'm andy actually Rachel. imagining how linden would say it but oh linden too god we have so many uk friends now. we do i can't play the guitar and do the slap thing either you know the snap snap plop plop Oh, what a relief. <laughs> Patrick is part of this. Maybe we shouldn't use Patrick's trailer at the beginning. <laughs>